Well, good morning. Today is Christmas Day, that day that we as Christians have traditionally um, celebrated the birth of Jesus. I, I think, as I recall, that date was selected sometime in the um, fourth century. Depending on the age of your children, you were either up bright and early this morning opening gifts, or if you're like us, you'll open them uh, when you get home. Either, either way, I am fairly confident that your kids are hoping for a short message. <laughs> I will see what I can do. Christmas Eve and, and Christmas mornings are filled with family traditions, maybe watching favorite uh, Christmas shows or eating Christmas fare, gathering around the Christmas tree to open presents, perhaps, I hope, reading the Christmas story. It's interesting to think about that Christmas is actually celebrated around the world by, by Christians and non-Christians alike. Bob Featherland, former missionary to Mali, Africa, who heads up our missions program in the CMA, told me that, that unbelievers in Mali, uh, uh, primarily Muslims, recognize that Christmas is a special day for, for Christians. So that day, they, they will approach Christians in their houses, actually go uh, house to house and, and greet them, expecting a handout, preferably money for visiting. It's kind of a Christmas trick-or-treat, I guess. You see, the unbelieving um, world can even celebrate Christmas because a little baby they, they've never uh, seen, born in a stable far away a very long time ago, is non-threatening. That little, little baby carries little significance to, to them outside a holiday, maybe some traditions, time off work, uh, or better yet, time off school. As we gather this morning a, a, as Christians to celebrate the birth of our Savior, we have much to ponder, N not so much the trappings of Christmas, but the birth uh, uh, of God in the person of Jesus Christ. There is more recorded for us about the birth of Jesus than His entire childhood. I mean, obviously, His birth was an important event, but why? Why are the events of His birth so meticulously recorded for us in, in Matthew and in Luke? Why does the prophet Isaiah uh, uh, record uh, events surrounding His birth 700 years before the event? I mean, if, if we stop and think about it, aren't the events of uh, surrounding Passion Week, His crucifixion and His resurrection, um, isn't, isn't Easter more important uh, to believers? I mean, should we not start a campaign to make sure that the Easter bunny gets equal billing to Santa? I would even suggest <coughs> that there are many in the unbelieving world who recognize the importance of Jesus' birth. What, what do I mean? I think those in the unbelieving world work hard at distracting us from the true meaning of Christmas. You see, anything to keep from pondering the fact that the Word became flesh, lived for a while among us. Because to acknowledge that means you got to do something with that truth. A couple of examples for you to consider. Let's, let's start with the, with the atheist. I'm sure you're aware of the battle that wages between atheists and Christians every year, uh, specifically at this time, uh, as it has to do with the display of nativity scenes in public places. The battle raged in California this year, interesting, with atheists getting the upper hand. 
You see, in some communities in California, you have to get a permit to, to put up a display in public places like, you know, city parks. Well, the atheists uh, started early. They, they, they applied and, and received the spots that were usually, uh, I mean, this was intentional, that were usually reserved um, by Christians for those nativity scenes. And then they put up their own displays calling the true meaning uh, of Christmas a myth. Here's my, here's my question. It's kind of humorous. I mean, I, I know people get really bothered about that, but my, my question is, why, why go to all the trouble? Why, why, why does this bother them so much? Why, why can't they just let us believe in a myth if we want to? Because in their heart of hearts, they know if it's true that God became flesh, then they must do something with Jesus. I mean, think about it. Uh, they don't battle trimmed trees or smiling Santas, but nativities and, and even Christmas carols heralding the birth of God incarnate. I mean, they don't care if Belks or J.C. Penney uh, play Jingle Bells or Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. They'll throw a fit to hear joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Consider another example, the even kind of backing down a step from the atheist, consider the agnostic. Agnostics say, I don't know if there's a God or not, and, and frankly, I don't care. It doesn't really matter to me. They're okay with giving and receiving gifts, Christmas trees, and Christmas lights. But to acknowledge that Jesus was God in the flesh, that would, too, require that they do something with Jesus. They're all right. There may be a God, don't, don't know. I'm okay with the ambiguity. I just as soon stay, in fact, in blissful ignorance. Don't bother me. Because if God invaded time and space, that requires something. Another example, how about the pluralists? Pluralists are, are on the rise in the population in the U.S., even in, uh, even in churches, which is shocking, Pluralists tell us that all religions are okay, that all religions lead to God. It doesn't matter what you believe, just believe something. And all um, religions contain some element of truth, and if you adhere to that particular truth, you'll, you'll be okay, you'll find God in the end. And since they see all religious roads lead to heaven, any, and get this, it's important, any exclusive claims of one religion over another, well, those must be discarded. Certainly, the claim of Christianity that God would come in the flesh must be refuted. For if that is true, then the claims of all other religions are false. And so, the pluralists of the world spend time denying the incarnation. If that baby in the manger was God, then all that he said was true, and he owns exclusive right to worship. We're beginning to see uh, why the truth of the incarnation, the, the Christmas story, the truth of the deity of Jesus Christ is, is so important. You see, to deny the deity of that baby born in a manger is to take the core truth out of Christianity. If Jesus was not God, then Christmas has no meaning. If Jesus was not God, then his death on the cross would be in vain, and Easter has no meaning. If Jesus was not God, then 
we are without hope, might as well go home, concentrate on the Wii and the the Xbox and the the gifts and the tinsel and the lights and the traditions and all the fattening foods, might as well eat, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die, because therein lies the only joy of Christmas. So this morning I want us to concentrate just for a few moments on the true meaning of Christmas. I want to do that by answering that question posed by the songwriter, what child is this? I mean, was he God in the flesh? I'd like to answer the question by looking at a very familiar passage to us, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, which gives us an interesting insight into the identity of this babe in a manger uh, in those nativity scenes. You see, many have tried to answer the question, what, what child is this? They, they sought to answer it in different ways. Some have said that he was a good teacher. Others have said he was a good example. Others said he was a great prophet. Still others say that he was a, a big fake, a, a charlatan. Even when Jesus walked on the earth, rumors were, were rampant about his identity. Uh, one day, Jesus asked his own disciples, who do the people say that I am? What's their guess? You know? And they responded, some say you're Jeremiah, Uh, others say you're Elijah, some say you're John the Baptist, raised from the dead, others say you're one of the other prophets. Then Jesus looked directly at his disciples and said, who do you say that I am? That's my question. What, What child is this? Who do you say Jesus is? Now, Isaiah, and we're going to look at Isaiah, just one verse in Isaiah this morning, was a prophet of God prophet to the very rebellious people of Israel about, as I said earlier, 700 years before the birth of Christ. Up to this point in his book, um, it's been pretty much doom and gloom. I, Isaiah has primarily been speaking of the impending judgment to come on Israel. But, but chapter 9, we, 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 we turn a, a new chapter He begins with the words, but there will be no more gloom. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Matthew quotes verses 1 and 2 of Isaiah in in Matthew chapter 4, saying that Jesus fulfilled this prophecy, that Jesus was the great light. Well, Isaiah goes on to give us three reasons why there's not going to be any more gloom. The first in in verse 4, if if you were to look at it, you see that that the Lord is going to remove the yoke of of oppressors um, from Israel that had burdened them. Then in uh, verse 5, the second thing, he says that that there's going to be no more war. In fact, the clothing and the the shoes, the boots uh, of soldiers are going to be used to build fires. And then the third reason is in verse 6, the one that I want to look at this morning. Isaiah says there will be no more burdensome yoke, there'll be no more war, uh, and the reason is because that great light of verse, of verse 1 is going to come in the form of, of a child. Look at the first part of Isaiah 9, 6. It says this, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. Again, that's a verse that many of us are familiar with. We, we hear it every year around this time made famous among other ways, and Handel's Messiah, written in 1741, I, I, I promise to keep this short or I'd sing it for you. Uh, unfortunately, um, the unbelieving world wants to stop at the first part of verse 
uh, verse 6. They'd like to keep uh, this baby, uh, a newborn, in a manger. Take him out once a year and put him in that little uh, manger. Maybe sing a few familiar Christmas carols and eat some really good food. But the verse, and frankly, the Christmas story does not stop there. It goes on to get, Isaiah 9, 6 goes on to give a description of the character of this child. Look at it. And his name, this baby, will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. I want to take just the next few minutes to look at each of those four names uh, that describe the child born to us, and in so doing, learn a little bit about the answer to that question, what child is this? Before we look at those four titles, I want you to notice just a couple of things about the first part of the verse. Notice first he says, a child will be born to us. It's an interesting way to say it. He's already, Isaiah has already said in chapter 7 that the child would, would be, to be born will be with us, Emmanuel, but, but now he says this child will be born to us. What, what does this mean? We don't normally think of a, of a birth carrying any significance to anyone except parents. Uh, okay, maybe grandparents. The, and the birth of a baby 2,000 years ago should have very little impact on us today. For example, can anyone here tell me the birthday of Caesar Augustus, who was the most powerful man in the world, at, and I'm looking to make sure that Ralph isn't here, the most power, because he would, he would know the answer, um, the most powerful man in the world at this time, can, does anybody know his birthday? Better question, does anybody care? No one cared when little Augie was born, except maybe his parents. You could care less. Augustus means little more to you than that he was a Roman emperor, yet you had to kind of memorize that for an answer on a test. You also know that he was a pawn used by God to, to issue this decree to get this couple that was in Nazareth down to Bethlehem because Micah chapter 5 verse 2 said that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Parents are typically the only ones who are affected by birth. They're the ones who have to f- feed the little child in the middle of the night. They're the one that has to buy him, him or her clothes, you know, teach him, send him to school or, or, or do school, teach him a trade, spend a fortune sending him or her to college. Um, a birth changes the parents' lives forever, but usually just, just them. The birth of a child born some 2,000 years ago in a faraway place, I want you to know, has changed my life very much. He's changed it for eternity. This child was born not only to his parents, he was born to us. And his birth carries eternal ramifications to everyone who's ever lived. Joseph and Mary, certainly. Caesar, Augustus, everybody in this auditorium. I want you to notice the second thing. The first part of the verse says, a son will be born to us, a son will be given to us. Another interesting way to say it. And you have there the very essence of Christmas. The Son was given to us. For God so loved the world, the one, the verses, the verse that the children quoted, that He gave His only begotten Son. It was a gift unearned, unmerited, undeserved. I've told you this before. God did not have to check His list 
to see who was naughty and nice. He already knew who was naughty and nice. Bad news, all of us, well, we were naughty. And, and, and the amazing thing is that even though he knew that, he gave his son and the free gift of eternal life for those who believe in him. He was given to us. Now let's turn our attention to the, the, the names given uh, to this son who was given to us. Now, uh, you need to know Isaiah did not intend for us to, to understand that when this child was born, these would be his actual names. Okay, When Mary was pregnant and people asked, as people are wont to do, what name do you have picked out for the child? She did not say, well, we've narrowed it down to four. Wonderful Counselor, um, Mighty God, Eternal Father, or Prince of Peace. Didn't do that. In fact, they were told to name him Jesus. These names are, are, are actually meant to describe him. They are, in fact, names that he deserves to bear. First, he's called Wonderful Counselor. Your translation likely has that, um, those two words combined into one title, and that would be right, but it's helpful to look at the meaning of each word separately. The word wonderful speaks of that which is beyond human comprehension. That's literally what it means, beyond understanding. Now, think about that. This baby, to be born, is beyond understanding. Think of a little baby, it's usually not that much to figure out. Smiling. It means his tummy's full, diaper empty. If he's crying, the opposite. Tummy empty, diaper full. Not too difficult. This child given to us was beyond human comprehension. This is a very strong wording that Isaiah is using. Not only is this one wonderful in what he does, he himself is a wonder beyond comprehension of humanity. He's beyond you. He's a baby. He's beyond you. He's a baby. He's beyond me. Uh, so much so that he was out of reach. And so he must come down to us. To come as he was would have been incomprehensible to us. So he came as one of us, born of a woman, born of flesh. It's wonderful. Not only that, he's counselor, speaks of wisdom. It speaks of his knowledge. It speaks of his understanding. While he is beyond understanding, he himself possesses infinite understanding or infinite wisdom. Scripture says in another place that he had no need of anyone's counsel. He is the wonderful counselor, the incomprehensible one of infinite understanding. And as such, he is capable of counseling us of understanding things when we don't understand. And therefore, since he is wonderful counselor, he is thoroughly reliable. This is the idea here. He has the insight to know all things at all time and to lead us at all times, even when we don't understand what's going on. Years ago, I read a story by a pastor named Bob Harvey. He tells how that early in his ministry, he was a young pastor, a close friend of his died in an effort to comfort the, the widow, he shared all of his seminary textbook explanations of how and why God might let this happen. But this woman, now these are in Pastor Harvey's words, in, in his, uh, this woman lovingly rebuked him. She said, I don't need a God like that. I don't need to understand all this. What I need is a God who is bigger than my mind. 
And that's what we have in a baby in a manger. A God who is infinitely bigger than our minds because He is wonderful counselor. Secondly, He's called mighty God. What we have here is a very clear declaration that this child to be born was in fact God. Do not miss that. The same words are used in Isaiah 10, the very next chapter, same author, clearly referring to the Lord or clearly referring to Yahweh. It says, now in that day the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, capital L-O-R-D, that means Yahweh, the Holy One of Israel, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob to the, same words, mighty God. This baby to be born was mighty God. Now, the unbelieving world would prefer to keep him as a child, uh, uh, as a baby in a manger because, as I said earlier, very non-threatening. What accountability is there to a baby who goos and gaws? But what accountability is there to the mighty God, the creator of the universe, the one with whom we have to do, the one to whom one day we will answer, give an account. If, if this is true, it kind of takes the fun out of Christmas, well, if you don't know Him, if you don't have a, a relationship with this mighty God as Lord and Savior. It, it is the reason that He came. Third, He's called Eternal Father. It's kind of confusing at first glance. How can He be called the Son and the Father um, at, at the same time? In other words, how can He be the second person and the first person of the Trinity all at the same time? What, what we have here when it says He's the Eternal Father, it's a Hebrew idiom. It could be translated Father of Eternity. We, we do the same thing today. I could, if I wanted to say you were the most patient person I had ever met, I could say you are the Father of Patience. That's the idea here. What, what, what is intended is that Isaiah saying, it was saying this baby to be born in the flesh was in fact eternal. He's the father of eternity. He is both the possessor and provider of eternity, of eternal life. He alone dispenses it. John chapter 3 verse 36, speaking of Jesus, says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. See, this, this clearly identifies the fact that Jesus, we, we got to do something with him. He's either who he said he was or he wasn't. And if he was who he said he was, if he is who the Bible says he was, then you better have him by believing in him. If you don't, the wrath of God is what you get. Now, uh, while many see that eternal life comes from Many different sources, this clearly claims, gives the exclusive claim to Jesus, mighty God in the flesh, the sole provider of eternal life. Finally, this one to come is also called Prince of Peace. You know that when this baby was born in Bethlehem, we, we, we sang about it, we talked about it last night, the kids told us on the video, we want to show that to you again because it's just so cute. Uh, there, was a, there was a host of, of heavenly angels heard to proclaim, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. This baby came to restore peace. This baby came to bring a kingdom of peace. 
You might today look around and say, I don't see much peace in the world today, and you would be right. But you need to understand that there is a, there's a present peace and there is a future peace which Jesus came to bring. You see, peace is more than just a cessation of war. Certainly, um, there will, there's a day coming when Jesus returns to the earth that He will fulfill this passage as seen in the rest uh, of it, like in verse 7. He will establish a kingdom of righteousness that will produce um, the fruit of peace, peace on earth. But the peace that He brought through Bethlehem is realized in the hearts of people when they are reconciled or they have peace with God. Romans chapter 5 says it this way, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And, and so in the midst of uh, uh, what many uh, call the hustle and bustle of a Christmas season, the stress associated with that, we can know peace through the Prince of Peace. So that's who He is. Christmas Day is a special day, special not just for traditions that have arisen through the centuries. It finds its greatest significance in the lives of, of those who have a relationship, not just with a baby, not just because you put a little baby in the manger 2,000 years ago, but you have a relationship with wonderful God, I mean, wonderful counselor, mighty God, uh, Father of eternity, and Prince of Peace. For all believers who have in the past walked in darkness, we now walk in His marvelous light. And I want to say to you, if you're a guest here this morning, He can be your um, peace as well. Let's stand for prayer. Father, we want to be reminded today, whether we've opened gifts or, or whether we're two open gifts, we want to be reminded today of what Christmas is about, the gift of Your Son. You wrapped Him, gave Him to us. If You didn't wrap Him, if He would have come as He was, He would have killed us because we were sinful. You wrapped Him in flesh to, 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 to kind of wrap up His glory. And He came, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, Father of eternity, Prince of peace, so that through Him we could know You. Through Him we could have the gift of eternal life. So today as we celebrate, family, friends, help us to keep Christ at the forefront. In Jesus' name, amen.